Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. So Fauci is out. Fauci's out retiring, as I understand it, this December. I think I originally, didn't he originally say he was here until Biden's end of his first term and hopefully his last term? Some such thing. Now it's out there. Fauci's announced that he is going to be... Retiring again, as I understand it, um, in December at the end of the year. So, did you see what he's going to make in retirement? By the way, three hundred and fifty, three five zero thousand dollars, three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, courtesy of the taxpayer. Now, I know a lot of people, and I understand. I th- there's a tendency to applaud this because of what we endured. Um, through the leadership that was, you know, well, provided by or not provided by Dr. James Fauci and conflicting information and condescension and all that sort of stuff. And I get it. I get it that he let a lot of people down. He uh, was not straightforward. He changed his story constantly. It was impossible to figure out what this guy really did think. I still don't even know. Other than government has the answers, according to Dr. Fauci. Actually, the CDC does. And you shouldn't care about what they tell you you have to do. That's the one thing that I know that he believes. Of course, we don't believe that. But nonetheless, and that's not true, most importantly, which I want to talk about that today. But, you know, I know that this actually reminds me. See, some people think it was bad that we had Fauci. And I, I understand that, and I agree with that, I guess, even to a point. But if it wasn't Dr. Fauci, my friends, I just want to make it clear that it would have been someone else. It will be someone else. This is the nature of how this thing works. This is a machine. This is why we need a small government, because the people that are produced in positions of leadership have been molded into speaking government, thinking like government, acting and behaving like government. And it's not a good thing. It's not productive. It's not efficient. It's deceptive. It's bad. Now, there are some exceptions to the rule, but folks, if you've spent a half century or whatever it is, In government, at high levels of government, it was never intended to be that way. It was never intended to be that way. And this makes me think of term limits, by the way, not just for someone who's like in a position at the CDC or whatever. I actually, I'm thinking about congressmen, excuse me, I've learned from the state of New York that that is an antiquated way of saying it. Congress people, um, whatever you want to call them, um having term limits. And I know that this is a popular notion. We have term limits for the president. Why shouldn't we have term limits for other elected officials? I wouldn't oppose this. I want to be clear. I, I'm not, 
And it's not because I want people to have lifelong appointments. My, or positions, they're not appointed, they're elected. My problem is that some people, in fact, dare I say, a healthy chunk of people think that that is the remedy, thinks that that is the solution. And you take Dr. Fauci out, watch and see, it's going to be someone else that's going to be appointed by a lover of big government that's been groomed and taught and prepared and whatever else for this position. Um, And it's going to be much of the same. And so that's term limits to me to, again, I wouldn't oppose them. I'm not against them in theory. I just think for those who think that that is going to solve the problem, I think that that's incredibly a naive position to take because look at who's been appointed. I mean, across the board, right? Across the board in positions of government, whether it's a cabinet position, an ambassador, what have you. I mean, this is just the way that it functions. This is the way that it works. This is the way that it is, and it's not a good thing. So just wanted to acknowledge that. I don't want to talk about it. Talked enough about Dr. Fauci over the past two plus years, um, more than I ever expected to or intended to in my entire lifetime. So just wanted to mention that off the top. By the way, welcome to the program. I am your host, the ever so lovable Todd Huff. Email Todd at ToddHuffShow.com. Thoughts, questions, feedback, and of course, adoration and praise always needs to be uh, accompanying that Email or text. You can text us 317-210-2830, 317-210-2830. I want to talk today. I want to talk today about something that I I don't know. I don't know if it was an epiphany, if, if it was something that I have been reminded of, something that I relearned. I don't know how I would uh, quantify this. But I was, I started rereading yesterday, and when I say rereading, I typically mean listening, um, listening to some sort of an uh, an audio book. That's typically what I do because of how my day is structured. I'll spend a chunk of time exercising and listening to a book, and I started rereading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. By the way. If you've never read this book, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. This book was um, basically the result of radio programs that were conducted by C.S. Lewis in the 1940s. Now, I know some of you just tuned me out because you think, oh, man, that's old and antiquated. But folks, the things that he talks about, the truth that he talks about is not antiquated. Truth is an unchanging force. It is what is, and it is not going to change. In fact, the sooner that we understand and accept the truths that exist, notice I'm not saying my truth. You talk about a pet peeve, man, don't don't do that. My truth, and I understand my experience, my, if you're a Christian, you might say my calling, whatever, my experience, my history, okay, that's unique to you, but truth, even if it's, even if it's you are gifted at a certain thing, it's not your truth, it's just the truth, if that is, of course, what it is, if you're, if you're having an accurate representation of that, if you're speaking it 
um, with veracity. So, but this this book is phenomenal. So it was based upon radio programs, which I don't know if I'd forgotten that. I just it just hit me because, of course, doing what I do, I thought, man, this this guy. So these he came on the radio in the 1940s, and this was during World War II. Now, I don't know if any of you, well, I'm sure some of you, maybe many of you, some of you, lots of you, whatever, have read his, uh, what the, the Chronicles of Narnia, that series, or maybe a book or two in that series, the most famous probably being The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, but just a phenomenal book, a series of books. And The, and the Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, at the beginning of the book, the four children are sent. It's it's um, it's set. The first part of the book is set in England during the World War II years. I say the first part because the other part of the book is set in the mythical world of Narnia. And so, but what the parents are doing in those in that period of time is they are moving their children away from the city because they were getting bombarded by Nazi warplanes. They were constantly being bombed and attacked. And so they were shipping their children out into more rural areas where they would be safer, presumably not having bombs dropped on them because, of course, the Nazis were trying to target places with a high population density, not farms and places out in secluded parts of the countryside. So that's the setting of the book, um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And and that's the reason why the four children that are in that book actually ended up uh, at the professor's house and all that sort of stuff and ended up in Narnia. I don't want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about his book, Mere Christianity, because these were lectures. These were discussions, I guess you would say, on the radio in England back in 1941 and 42, I believe, in the 1940s, during this time. So you had people who were, and I'm getting to something here that's going to pertain to common stuff. I just want to set the stage, just the first segment. So you had people who were being bombarded, that were being attacked on a regular basis. And it's amazing. It's amazing what happens. It amazes, It's amazing how interested a person becomes in... God, or say the case, the Bible or Christianity, when terrible things begin to happen, when you're facing death, when you're facing destruction, when you're facing war, not just in some far off place on the other side of the world, when you are living it each and every day, or you are under threat of it constantly, you people had questions is the point. And so C.S. Lewis was invited by, I want to say BBC. They said it in the book. I think it was BBC. To come on the radio. Just imagine by the day, or today, by the way. Imagine PBS inviting, there might have been a time when this would have happened. I can't, I don't think it would happen today. Um, but inviting someone like Billy Graham to explain Christianity to its viewers say, in the wake of 9-11 or something. It was similar to that, right? When Think about 9 I was just talking about this with someone today, or excuse me, yesterday. And she was four years old, four years old in, two, in 2001 on 9-11. And I was trying to explain to her that, that the, 
after in the aftermath of 9-11, the country pulled together. In fact, I remember Bush's polling numbers was something like 90. It was 90%, I think, 90-something. High 80s, low 90s, mid-90s. The country just pulled together. There was, and people were friendlier. There was, people seemed to have a different perspective. People were flying flags. I mean, everybody had flags on their cars. You remember this if you're old enough to remember post 9-11 days. And so that was something similar, you know, when there's a horrific attack or circumstances that happens, people respond. And again, people were going to church in early, in 2001 after 9-11. Um, people changed. People changed. Unfortunately, that hasn't stuck, but people did change. If you experienced life and remember life after September 11th, you know what I mean. And so a similar thing was happening in England when C.S. Lewis was addressing the audience. And he named the, the, lecture, the series of discussions or lectures Mere Christianity, which turned into the book because what he was trying to do was basically saying, look, I'm here to articulate the truths of Christianity. And I'm going to explain it. I'm going to start pretty much from, from square one. But it's mere Christianity because I'm not getting into the denominational differences. I'm just, I'm just getting to the truth of, you know, Jesus and the Bible and that. You know, we're not going to get into differences of denominational opinions and so forth. We're just going to talk about what he would say, mere Christianity, just the, the framework the Christian creed, and all that sort of stuff. And so he would talk about it over the airwaves to this group of people that were experiencing great suffering, fear, loss. I mean, it was harrowing. And again, some of them were sending their kids away just to protect them. All sorts of things like that were happening. And that's, and that's the framework. And in the early chapters of the book, this is what I want to get to and I want to talk about through the other examples that we're going to bring up some common examples and talk about this today. But he said something that I've either forgotten, never caught before. But as you know, when I come on here, I try to think of ways, how do I articulate a point differently? How do I communicate this to someone um, who may be struggling to accept it or who has questions or just needs a different way of thinking about it? How can I help people articulate it you know, in their own, well, process it in their own minds differently so that it helps them be a little bit better. Because that's what happened to me when I was listening to this book. And I want to, that's what I want to provide to those of you who listen. And he said something that just sent like a whole series of thoughts just triggering in my brain. I had, in fact, I had to pause the book as I was riding the bike. And I just, as I was riding, started thinking, and he made a comment. Now, it's not directly, I, it just made me think of how it applies to our situation today. He made some comment that said, I'm not here, when I talk about mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, I'm not trying to determine if someone believes it or to assign blame for those who don't follow out its teachings. I'm just here, C.S. Lewis says, to define, not that he's defining it, but to spell out what it is, to identify the truth. So I'm not here to say this person isn't 
believing it or ex- exercising it correctly and this denomination's wrong here. He said, I don't want anything to do with that, he said. What I'm here to do is to lay out the truth, not that I'm the one who has discovered it. I'm the one that's just helping to communicate it. C.S. Lewis, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing kind of the, the gist of it here. And he said, I'm not here to say this person faltered here or why this person made a mistake there. And it just, a series of things started triggering in my mind. And it's the concept of truth, which we talk about. You know that we talk about that on this program constantly. I think that that's the number one problem in America today is that there's an absence of truth. But there's truth and then there is blame. And folks, you cannot assign blame until you define truth. Let me say that again because I just kept thinking about this and this is – C.S. Lewis that helped bring this thought out for our purposes. But you cannot assign blame until you define truth. Meaning, the the media, politicians in general, the radical left, and politicians on both sides, they want to assign blame constantly. They want to blame the other side, right? And so it's all a play on perception. But really and truthfully no pun intended, we can't assign blame until we know the truth, right? So we can't, we can't start saying, for example, Biden wants to say there's not a recession, but if there is, it's Trump's fault, right? So he wants to blame without properly identifying the truth. Of course, the proper truth is we are in a recession, but even if that's not the case, even if that's not the case, there are truth, principles of truth in economics that if we follow those things, then we will know, we, we will have good results. If we don't follow those things, we will have bad results. And so then if we understand the truth, the laws of ec- economics, then we can say who's not following the truth, they are the ones to blame. Not just not, not having any idea as to what the truth is and just blaming someone because of fill in the blank, because they've been taught to hate that person, because they've been, you know, had the pot stirred for the past five years, six years, whatever it is, that the previous president was trying to reign the world with Vladimir Putin or whatever nonsense people have been buying into. But the average person today in this country has no idea no idea about the truth of some of these very important principles but they are so quick to appoint the blame to point the finger of blame at the person on the other side of the aisle the person who happens to be a republican or and it happens both ways by the way but first we need to define the truth. And that's why, that's what we try to do on here. That's why it's never personal for me. It's never personal for me. In fact, I don't like to even assign blame a lot of times. Now, on big ideological issues, I have no problem. But when, if you've ever noticed, I don't like talking a lot about these political scandals because at some level, I'm not ever going to really know the truth. And I don't like to talk about it unless I know what the truth is, so then I can assign the proper, you know, discuss it from the proper perspective and assign the blame as necessary or as appropriate. So, 
Very long-winded, that segment. Oz is about giving up on telling me it's time to take a break, but it is past time. Next segment's going to be short, but I want to talk about this today. I want to talk about how quick people are to blame, to blame other people, people with ideological or worldview differences for problems that they don't even begin to understand because they've never been taught the truth. The truth. They've never been given context. So we're going to do that with lots of examples today. I got sound bites and everything else. Timeouts in order, though. Sit tight, my friends. Back in just a minute. Welcome back, my friends. Oz told me I had no idea I did this, and I don't know what I was thinking when I said this. She said I referred to Dr. Fauci as James. What am I? I don't even know. I didn't even know I did that. Dr. Tony or Anthony Fauci is what I should have said. Gee whiz. Where where does that even? I don't even know where that came from. Probably was excited to talk about what we're talking about, and I just got discombobulated there. Anyhow. So we're talking about truth and blame. And as I said last segment, we cannot assign blame, political blame, or just blame for something that happened until we know the truth. And that on two levels, right? So there's the truth of what actually happened. So for example, say an event like January 6th, right? So it's we're told that Trump is to be blamed, but we're not told the truth. In fact, they don't even want to discuss what Trump said. They don't want to play his speech. They don't want to play the part where he literally, I don't have the soundbite here, but you've heard it. When he says, we're going to go down uh, to peacefully protest. He says peacefully and something. I don't have it. Peaceful, peacefully and patriotically, maybe. I can't, I'd have to look it up. But, he, but they want to say that he deserves the blame, but they don't want to tell you the truth or the context, right? So there's the truth of a series of events or what happened, but then there's the larger truth, maybe the big T truth in life that says, for example, um, a government that is, well, a government that promises everything you need is big enough to take everything you have. For example, I didn't come up with that. I've read that somewhere before. And so, there's truth there. So, but again, if the government promises to do X, Y, and Z and it doesn't happen, what do they, who do they blame? Who do they blame? They blame the, for example, the taxpayer who's quote-unquote not paying his fair share. And as we talked about yesterday, what do they do? They then say this piece of legislation is going to empower the IRS to hire 87,000 or whatever it is more IRS agents to make sure that the people that are that we're blaming, the government is officially blaming, people who are defrauding the government of, of tax revenue, they want to blame them, and so they use that blame as a catalyst to say, oh, this is a good thing, and people applaud and they cheer. When in reality, again, I'm not giving a free pass to people who are legitimate tax cheats and so forth, but the truth is, the truth is what Lao Tzu said, which I don't have in front of me at the moment, but basically, the more laws you have, the more lawbreakers you have, especially if they're process crimes, not crimes against the moral law, against human nature, the nature, the way that God created the world to work. If you're, 
if there's not a law against a specific heinous act, the conscience, your conscience, my conscience, will convict us of of those things. I mean, it, again, going back to this book, I don't want to talk specifically about the book Mere Christianity, but C.S. Lewis lays this argument out rather profoundly in the first very first chapter of the book. He says, anytime, anytime we engage with someone who does something, like say, for example, they cut in line, we would say, hey, what are you doing? And he said, it's not just like saying, hey, I don't like what you did. We're appealing to that person to say, hey, you shouldn't do that. And when we say you should not do that, we are appealing to them. We are presupposing that they have within them the same ability to recognize a moral law that exists outside of us that we are all subjected to, and the conscience convicts. And he says, somewhere in the book, I think I remember reading this, he says, I have a list of excuses that's as long as a sheet of paper, the the sheet of paper is as long as my arm. But if I didn't believe in the moral code, why would I take the time to give excuses for not living up to it? So if I cut in line, I agree that I shouldn't take the turn of someone else who's been there before me, but I I agree with that so much that I say, well, the reason is this is my friend. They were going to order for me anyway, whatever the case may be, right? So I try to justify it. I try to say I'm really not in violation of that. And so, but when we're not allowed, and when I say not allowed, I mean the government, the media, politicians, they don't want to get to the discussion of truth. They want to stay on the issue of blame. That's why they spend so much time. Man, there's so much truth here. That's why they spend so much time trying to get people to hate a certain personality. Because if you hate a person, I mean blindly with complete and absolute rage, hate another person, like they have stirred many people up to hate to, to hate Donald Trump, then it's an easy exercise to blame them even if we don't have any information. Because why? Because we have been convinced, they have been convinced, someone has been convinced, massive, well, large numbers of people have been convinced that he's so evil, whatever they say just sticks. And so he's just to blame and people accept it because they've been so conditioned to just buy in and absorb these things regardless of what the truth is. Man, this is, I just, I think that this is a powerful, powerful way to look at it. And again, I, all the credit here to to C.S. Lewis, but you cannot assign blame. You cannot ex- assign blame for a particular problem until you have the truth. And it's not just the truth of what happened specifically in a set of circumstances or a certain scenario. Trump did this at his speech and then the people did this and whatever else, right? That's the truth of a series of events. There's also the truth that says... The government becoming too large, the government that is now acting not as a, you know, at the direction of the people, a government that's grown to the point where it's no longer a government of, by, and for the people, but instead it is a government that dictates how the people are going to live, then that truth is bad things will follow. Bad things will follow. 
That's the nature of things. And it's why they come up with terms. They come up with terms that can conveniently fit with the notion of casting blame without talking about truth. Election deniers is one of them. I want to play the soundbite from Liz Cheney after the break. I want to play a little bit of Jim Acosta talking to former Acting uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf about being a quote-unquote election denier. These are powerful terms that assign blame without really allowing us to have a discussion about what is actually the truth. Timeouts in order, my friends. Sit tight. Back in just a minute. Welcome back, my friends. So let us get to some of these sound bites that I've mentioned here. Here's a sound bite. John Carl over the weekend, I believe, talking with, well, recently defeated GOP representative Liz Cheney, who's out there, who's now telling us, and you'll hear from the soundbite here, she's basically going to try to stop anybody, anybody, even if it, I guess, means ushering in more Democrats. She's going to be campaigning against anybody who she determines is an election denier. Here's a soundbite, Elizabeth, excuse me, uh, Liz Cheney speaking with John Carl. It's just a short soundbite. I want you to listen to this. So this is obviously not the end. This is a new beginning for you. You're starting this political organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to be the what, next president. Can you tell us, what are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to be very focused on mm-hmm. working to ensure that we do everything we can um, not to elect election deniers. And I'm going to work against those people. I'm going to work to support their opponents. I think it matters that much. Will you be getting involved in campaigns against those Republican candidates that are challenging or denying the results of the election? Yes. Including your Republican colleagues here in Congress? Yes. Sounds like you ran for the wrong nomination to me. And look, I I mean, this, again, not, not personal, but this is, this is anti-Trump or never Trump, I guess, 2.0. Um, this is the Lincoln Project all over again. But, but here's the thing. They want to throw around these terms, election deniers. In fact, there's an exchange between Jim Acosta, and I referenced it last segment, former acting secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, about being an de- election denier. And this is how they did this, right? They, they come up with terms. Again, because why? They want to assign blame first before – they don't even care about the truth. They don't even care about the truth. In fact, the – RNC, the RNC has a 10-minute video that they've put together with sound bites of Democrats denying election results. Maybe I'll play that. But the point here, Liz Cheney says she's going to try to keep election deniers out of office. What does that mean? I mean, is she going to is she referencing the people in the 10-minute RNC video that are Democrats? Hillary's been out there. She's still, every time she gets a chance at the podium and microphone, she tells people, hey, you know, you can do everything right. You can run a perfect campaign, and it can still get stolen from you, right? Maybe throw in some phony, fake Southern accents or wherever she is geographically at the moment. But it's this, again, election denier. What, what do you mean by election denier? Election denier. There are legitimate questions 
And we, when people throw those terms up, you aren't even permitted to raise them. How, how is that reasonable? Again, we had some folks join us as we watched 2,000 Mules, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago. And for those of you, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. It is a powerful documentary. Now, people can draw conclusions from it and think, well, there's probably not enough or there definitely is enough or wow, that's suspicious or whatever. But to say in the world that was revealed in the documentary 2000 Mules that people who have concerns about election integrity are election deniers? How I don't even know that we have enough information to, to deny anything. It's not as though we know, and this is, this is what, again, the blame is Trump and the people that he's gotten riled up over this are to blame, but they don't want to talk about the truth. Let's talk about the truth. I would love to hear someone acknowledge the evidence that was put forth in the 2000 Mules documentary and provide an explanation. Why in the world, why in the world is it okay for people to drop... I mean, potentially, I mean, multiple, many ballots in a drop box with masks on and gloves taking pictures of the ballots that they drop off. Why would they go from, take the same exact path where they would start, starting point being some leftist type nonprofit organization where arguably they might have been able to, to grab some of these ballots that had been Potentially, we don't know. But then they take a route where they go to 30, 40, 50, in some cases, drop boxes consecutively. What's the explanation for that? What's the explanation for doing that multiple times? Going to dozens of drop boxes, dropping off potentially, potentially hundreds of maybe more ballots. What is the explanation? Someone tell me. I would like to know that because to me, asking that question, wanting to have an answer does not make me deny any election. To me, if you see that and you don't want to acknowledge it and you completely ignore it, why are you denying that it's happening? Because you told us, okay, well, there's an example of one person. Of course, 2,000 Mules found that there were thousands of people, hence the name 2,000 Mules. Okay, well, there's only 2,000. That's not enough. How do you know? What's the truth? Don't know. You just want to blame. You just want to blame Trump. You just want to blame people who are, you know, people who like Trump, people who have questions. The number of Republicans who don't have faith in our elections is astonishingly high. See if I can find that during the break. But it's, it's, isn't it like 40% of all Americans have questions and doubts about the integrity of elections? That, That cannot happen in a free society. And these politicians, whether it was the most perfectly run election in the history of the world or not, or the most corrupt, they would have, if they cared about making sure people had faith in it, they would address it and say, what are your concerns? Let us get into that and let us show you why that that's not the correct you know, way of looking at it. That's what people who cared about truth would do. They wouldn't act like Liz Cheney here. So quick time out, my friends. Back in just a minute.
Welcome back, my friends. Here's uh, just a bit. I mean, this is a 10-minute video. I'm not going to obviously play this whole thing. I don't have 10 minutes remaining. But just listen. These are Democrats who have been busy denying election results. I'm just going to play a few, again, for the sake of time. But I've got this at the at our stack of stuff at community.toddhuffshow.com. And it's also on Twitter if you uh, go to the RNC's RNC Research is the Twitter handle, but listen to this. You can run the best campaign. Oh, boy. This is Hillary. You can even become the nominee. Uh-huh. And you can have the election stolen from you. What? It's a video they put together, hence the music. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's the real what thing. I'm scared about no, in 2020. Charlemagne. Because I think you're the illegitimate God. president that didn't really win. So how do you come you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He's an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice president? <laughs> <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the Jimmy election Carter. in 2016. He lost the election and he was put into office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally That's elected, is not Nadler. legitimate. I don't see this. John Lewis. President-elect as a legitimate president. Okay, that gives you an idea. I'm, I'm not going to play the whole thing. You can see it if you go to Twitter or whatever, but that's what happened in you know 2016, um, how it was portrayed. And it doesn't... You know this. I mean, we went through two impeachments, and now everything that's followed has basically all been an extension of that. Again, the focus is on blame. They don't sit there and ask the question, how can we find out what the truth is? The media, the Democrat Party, politicians in general. Instead, they think, how can we assign blame to our political adversaries? Who cares about the truth? That's how they think about it. It's reprehensible. It's got to stop, and I've got to take a break. Quick time out, my friends. Back in... Just a minute. Welcome back, my friends. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we that we have today. I was going to play some other one other soundbite. I was trying to get to time permitting, but just didn't simply well simply didn't have the time. So, but it's important. This I think that. What C.S. Lewis reminded me of and taught me. I think it's exactly, exactly true. And we cannot assign blame for the problems that we face in this country until we first have a grasp on the truth. And that's hard to do when you have professional deceivers in the media and in politics. And I've got to go. Have a great day. SDG. See you tomorrow. Take care.